Today's episode is sponsored by Craven Studios and their game Rare Roses, which is on Kickstarter right now. Rare Roses is a highly interactive gateway game for 1-6 to six players where you are a florist in the semi-cutthroat world of floral design. Purchase roses from the market or other players and use them to fill orders before they die to become the richest florist in Bloomsville. The game features artwork from fantasy artist Nene Thomas, who you might know from her early work on Magic the Gathering and Gen Con. So be sure to check out the flowery family game Rare Roses on Kickstarter right now and help them create something beautiful. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, talking about rolling, talking about writing, talking about roll and writes. we got Odin Pong from Equal Games. Odin, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, man, excited to talk to you. You've got a really interesting project that I heard about not too long ago where you are putting together this just giant anthology of Roll and Write games. And so I want to talk to you about Roll and Write. It seemed like you were uh, in, a, in the prime spot to uh, be an expert on the topic, or at least somewhat of an expert. <laughs> expert enough for us, at least. And uh, Roll and Writes are hot, man. Like everywhere you look, there, there's new ones coming out. There's, there's publishers turning established games into Roll and Write versions. There's all sorts of Roll and Write you know, stuff going on on the scene right now. So I want to get your thoughts and ideas on that. But before we get into it, who are you? How'd you get into game design? All that kind of thing. Um, well, like you said, my name's Odin Pong. I am the lesser half of Inkwell Games. And uh, I got into it. I've thought a lot about this. I've just always been a gamer. Like, ever since I was a little kid, I remember going to the thrift store and my mom would buy me this game. You know, I'm three years old or something. It's a board game, costs four bucks keeps me quiet for hours right um but i didn't at, i couldn't at that point read the rules so i just sort of had to make up rules or use the components in some way um and that sort of sparked moving into you know hanging out with people who are playing and making games as a as a little kid i didn't really necessarily recognize that i was playing a prototype <laughs> but um I played a lot of prototypes of of a few people around me who were making games, and then you you know you fast forward to middle school and Magic the Gathering and and um, having game nights at home, just you know with my friends playing the the usuals, the risks and the monopolies of the world. Uh, and then I think I was in high school when we a group of my friends and I started making a card game which was trash but uh it was the beginning and then later in my life one of those friends actually uh built a board game shop and uh it reintroduced me to sort of the the modern board game the you know the beyond mass market stuff uh, and i picked up the dc deck builder because it was i didn't even know what a deck builder was at that point and I'm playing it and I'm like, well, this is cool, but what if instead of a deck that someone else constructs, what if you brought a constructed deck to a deck builder and combined it with another player? And that was my first game design thought, you know, 15 years ago. 
And so how did you get into like the publishing side of things? Like, what took you down that route? Oh, well, I had an idea. I was playing Rolling Rats and I was like, wow. Um, I, th- I think it was Dice Stars, actually. And listening to um, Suzanne Sheldon and Mandy Hutchins had a Roll and Write episode. And uh, I was just super intrigued. And so I started looking them up and trying to find a situation, you know, uh, kind of a new new outlook on them. And I thought to myself, why hasn't someone made a book of these? Why hasn't it been done? And I started looking around and trying to find one and, and I couldn't couldn't find one. Honestly, I was a little shocked. I thought for sure somebody would have done it. I had, you know, previously thought of publishing my own designs, but um got to thinking maybe publishing other people's designs is a better way to go. I'd run into a lot of walls design-wise and and things like that. And you know, something in each design was just missing. And so Roland Rights are such a great uh, entry into gaming. And my interest is definitely in, you know, helping new people get into gaming, both design-wise and play-wise. And so I thought, why why not? Why not do a book of Roland Rights? Uh, and I've definitely discovered some challenges along the way. <laughs> and sometimes thought to myself, oh, that might be why people haven't done this yet. But it's been a really great process. Everybody's doing really great work. And uh, it's just been a really great learning experience. Yeah, very cool. And so let's get a good little working definition. What does it even mean by roll and write? What does that mean? Like when you say roll and write, what are you talking about? Generally, uh, some sort of randomizing element. It used to be, you know, sort of considered that dice were the thing, but there's the colloquially called flip and fill, which is cards rather than dice. But I like the some sort of element that's at least somewhat random and a recording of that randomness that has a meaning, right? So it may not be that you roll a five on a die that equals a five. And maybe that five has a different meaning within the context of the game. But the point is, you roll the dice or you flip a card, and then as a player, you make a choice as to how to record that. And that w- that's what makes a roll and write. Gotcha. And so what do you think has caused them to just explode with popularity recently? I mean, there's been some pretty big Kickstarter campaigns with Welcome To that just you know took off. Why do you think people are so attracted to these kinds of games? I think there's a lot of reasons. Uh, three main reasons, and then more after that. One of the things I noticed as I was trying to look into where sort of I fit into the industry is a lot of people saying, you know, board game night is becoming a chore. Having to learn a new game every time. And, you know, sometimes the learning process makes the game four hours long if it's kind of a heavier game. So there's that piece. Uh, Roll and writes are generally lighter although that's changing as time goes on. But, you know, uh, Twilight Imperium, the roll and write doesn't exist yet. Um, <laughs> Give it time, though, and we'll, we'll see. Um, the fourth edition will be, or fifth edition, I guess, will be uh, the roll and write. Absolutely. It'll still take eight hours. Just, you know. <laughs> yeah, there's just more rolling, right? Um, <laughs> exactly. 
The other thing is people are talking about shelf space, right? And roll and writes are generally low on the shelf space. Um, they take up a, a small amount of shelf space. So we've got the chore, we've got the shelf space, and they're they're easy to learn. And I just thought that makes sense. We need games, compact games that are easy to learn so that you can play them quickly and they don't take very long to play. You can play on a lunch break if you want or a, as they say, a, a filler. You can use it as a filler game. So between the low barrier to entry rules learning wise, the low impact on the shelf space and the relatively low commitment time-wise, they're just blowing up right now because I think everybody in the industry is is having a little bit of burnout and getting to grab onto something that you can get through in, you know, half an hour, 45 minutes maximum is uh, really appealing right now. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and they're also usually pretty cheap, you know, so it's not one of these big $100 miniatures Kickstarter games. I mean, it's a $15, you know, it comes with some pads of paper and some dice and some pencils and stuff like that. It's a super cheap game to produce, which is nice for companies. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's nice to have something in your catalog you can uh, produce for a buck and then sell it for 15 or you know 12 or whatever it is. And then, you know, also on Kickstarter, it, it's a it's kind of a no-brainer. No you know, where people, they see the, the $100, you know, giant, sprawling, three-hour epic game, and then they see the $15 or $20 rolling, right? And they're like, okay. And you kind of get that good balance, that good mix. Mm-hmm. Uh, where someone doesn't have to think as hard about a $20 game as they do about a $100 game. And so I think that also kind of plays in there. Absolutely. But yeah, I, I really like what you're saying as far as all these things have come together for this kind of perfect storm of reasons why people are are drawn to it. I've also really enjoyed using rolling rights in my classroom. Because mm-hmm. like you're saying, they're easy to teach, easy to learn, easy to pick up. I can print off a whole bunch. You know, a lot of these <laughs> games you can play with tons of people. You know, you know, a lot of these games are technically infinite number of people you can play with. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some are two to four, some are solo, but there's a lot of them that are as many people as you can fit in the room you can play with or even play online. I've seen like YouTube videos of people where you can kind of play along with the playthrough of the game and kind of compare scores and see if you could beat the host of the, the YouTube channel and things like that. And so I've used it in my classroom. There's a game, it's a variant of Rolling America called Rolling Sherlock, where it's <laughs> a, this big picture of Sherlock Holmes. And I've used that in my classroom during the Sherlock Holmes unit that I teach in literature class. And so it's been fun just to use that in the classroom and it takes 15, 20 minutes to play. And so it works out. We can play a couple times during a class period. And so, yeah, I think a lot of these things are coming together to create a really interesting time for rolling rights. And I guess there's also a really low barrier to entry from a design standpoint. And so let, let's kind of talk about that. What, what, what is that barrier to entry? And maybe, you know, it being so low kind of helps things. Like, what have you seen? Cause you've been working with lots of designers on this anthology thing. So what have you seen as far as that kind of side of things as well? Well, there's a lot of constraint, first of all, theoretically. There's only so many things you can do with dice and a pencil, right? And as I see the design space growing and changing and shifting, and we've just scratched the surface as far as what I think Roland Wrights can do. But at first, it's just, I have this idea, how can I make it work with just dice or just cards, this sort of randomizing element? And at first... It's not a huge commitment to think about it for a little while. It's quick to prototype, right? You're not having to cut out 45 hex tiles or finding a bunch of, you know, meeples or anything like that. It's it's a seriously some dice and a piece of paper to begin with. 
um, or some cards and a piece of paper. And so it's got this seemingly kind of low barrier to entry design-wise. Now, certainly the quality of Roland Wrights is pretty rangy, but at first it's it's pretty cool to just be able to have an idea and say, this is the only com- these are the only components I can use for this idea. What can I do with this with the theme I have in mind or the the sort of different way to look at a die than maybe perhaps has been done or the same way that does something different uh, within the context of the game. So I think the the low barrier to entry is that they're seemingly simple but have gotten you know more complex as time has gone on. Yeah, for sure. And like you're saying, there, there's so many constraints. It, we're to a point now, it's really hard to stand out without being super different or super interesting or innovative. And it's to the point where I've seen so many games, especially with prototypes and, and just designers throwing stuff up online, that it's really, effectively, this is just like that other game, except one little tiny change, mm-hmm. right? which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. you know. And, and that's kind of how things work in, in the gaming. You have an idea and then somebody builds on it and builds on it. But I guess with Rowan Wright, you're in such a small box a lot of times. It's hard to uh, differentiate your game from the others out there on the market, especially from the great ones, you know, because uh, there's there's only a few really just amazing ones. I guess that's my opinion, but I think there's only a few really amazing ones, uh, a lot of good ones, and then a ton of not very good ones kind of out there. And so it's interesting the kind of box that they put a designer in, but let's, let's kind of talk about some of these different styles, right? You mentioned there's only so many things you can do with some dice and a pad and a, and a pencil. What are some of the kind of bigger main styles, ways of rolling, ways of writing, ways of using these components that you've seen work really well? Like, Give me maybe some ideas and maybe some examples that, that kind of showcase them. So um, some common things are, you know, uh, the polyomino game. You know, you roll the die, the number on the die corresponds to a uh, shape that you draw into your into your onto your score sheet and it you're trying to make a fill a certain shape or something like that like a a tag city type situation there's a route builder um let's make a bus route is a good you know you're trying to get to specific points on a um on a map for um whatever the incentive may be there's the sort of more abstract, Gonshan Clever sort of, the numbers have very specific meanings that fit into, for lack of a better term, challenges that change your score, right? Those three are kind of the main ones, and then there are subsets from that where you're trying to fill in things in some specific way. There's a lot of that. Yeah, like, for instance, Welcome to, you have to fill in house numbers, but you have to do it in a certain way that gains you points, and you can do fences, and you're trying to keep the numbers to make sense. You know, as if you were going down the street numbers, you know, they wouldn't be out of order. They would go one, two, three kind of thing. And so it's it's very puzzly, most of these games, where you kind of have a puzzle in front of you, and you're trying to figure out the best way to do it. But there's also the random element that you can never totally know, you know, you never know if it's going to be a five, four times in a row and what that's going to do to the puzzle and kind of mess with you, there's never like a perfect way to do it. And I think that's one of the really cool aspects of these things that the random element brings. And I guess most of these games are super short. And so it's, it's okay for them to be pretty random. Well, and the best ones you, you play it the first time and you're like, I could do that better. Right. I could do that better. So I'm going to play this again. And that's, that's what I love about them is, is they're infectious, right? 
yeah. you start playing them and you can't stop playing them. Or if you hated it, you just lost 15 minutes, right? You're not stuck yeah. in a four hour game you hate. Yeah, that's a really good point. And like I said, a lot of times they are pretty short. And so you can just play it immediately and you don't feel like you've wasted your entire game night by playing it twice or three times or 10 times even, uh, just depending on, on the game. And so let's talk a little bit more about that, the puzzly nature versus thematic. So it seems like most of these games are more puzzle than theme. And so give me some idea, you know, what you've seen, maybe some actual specific games from your anthology that kind of lean more thematic. And like, what, is it, what does it look like to create a thematic roll and write? Like, how do you make that happen? Uh, lots and lots of work. Uh, so one example uh, is Icy Dice. It's uh, Ryan Hoy is the designer. And it's, I mean, it's technically a route builder. The idea is that you are taking food that you've harvested on a sled across a frozen ocean of acid. Okay. And you're going across the, the ocean of acid and you're delivering the food, you're trading the food for medicine and then taking that back to your village. Right. So how do you make that thematic? Right. Well, firstly you say, okay, it's, if you go over this ice too many times, it's going to break. And then you've got a sled falling into acid. Um, and at first it was like, that's kind of weird. Like where, but we just went with it and, so you have the the harvesting actions, you have the sled building actions, you have the going across the the pond, for lack of a better term, actions, and then the trade, and then the coming back. And all of it creates this really kind of tense and cool experience where you're you're like, wait, we're doing this with just dice and paper? Wow. Um, so one of the things he did was he developed a way to cross over a space a specific amount of times by marking it a specific way. And so as you're, as you're making the first mark, you're like, okay, I'm pretty safe. As you're making the second mark, you're like, ooh, this is getting a little, uh, for lack of a better term, dicey. And then the third time you go over that thing, it's a press your luck element where it could break. And you could lose part of your sled. And so suddenly there's all this tension built up in this situation and you're so bought into the idea that you have to get this food across these people and then the medicine back and it's just fantastic it's a really beefy game on paper using only dice as components yeah very cool and let's keep talking about the dice what are some of the different ways you've seen designers use the dice because there's lots of different ways to do it you know where one person rolls and everybody takes the numbers or you know each individual person gets their own numbers things like that give me some different kind of popular examples and then maybe some cool things that you're seeing uh kind of innovative ways of doing it maybe in the anthology yeah um so there's definitely the roll the dice everybody uses them right then there's the roll the dice, the active player gets to remove a certain number of dice, and then everyone else gets to use the pool after those are removed. There's a lot of solo games that are, you know, roll the dice, you use them, and then assign values to other places. There's, uh, during setup, often there's some dice rolling that assigns values for things for everyone in the, in the game, and then you move forward with those values and then there's the dice correspond 
you you roll the dice and maybe you draft one and then you know you go around the the table so sort of a dice drafting mechanic where each person's drafting dice and using them um as as they would and those are sort of the best examples i can think of of the ways that that dice get used and then they all have different implications within the game ursa minor is a it's a game by robin gibson that name is in in flux uh, but we're going with ursa minor right now it's a game about basically the last envoy to leave earth in search of a new home for humans and all the things that are um, sort of implied therein. It's a centuries-long mission. You don't play for centuries within the game, but the idea is that that you are on a ship, on a giant ship, and you are captaining a smaller ship from that ship to um, find resources or make new contacts or any number of things. And so at the beginning of that particular game, you roll the dice and you assign those values in what he refers to as a journal to specific actions immediately. So it's not it's not so much that you choose the dice, take an, take an action based on one die, choose another die, take an action based on that. You have to decide, define which dice you're going to use for which action right there and then go through the results. So it's pretty thinky. And those sort of decisions that having to really consider what you're doing, I think are what, what separates the rolling rights that are, you know, as you say, good or maybe not so good is that player agency. And the also the having to deal with the consequences of maybe having not thought enough about what you were doing. Yeah. That's what I found to be really what separates the good from the great in, in rolling rights is the player agency and just how much tension there is in each placement of a number placement of you know the, the polyomino whatever that word is uh, shape you know and all the, the tension the, that goes into okay i just need this one number but if these other two numbers get rolled i'm screwed mm-hmm. and that kind of push your luck element that's it's one of the things i love about it, it creates this tense kind of moment and you're not sure what's going to happen and uh, everybody around the table is kind of feeling the same thing and maybe different places with different numbers and it creates some interesting drama mm-hmm. in 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and something like that. And so I think that's a really cool way. And kind of go back to the thematic thing, any way that you can add a theme on top of these mechanisms that kind of brings out more of that tension, more of that drama, more of those hard choices, you know, whether you're talking about zombie apocalypse or you're talking about uh, operation, like in surgery, and, and you need to do different things in different orders, but you maybe maybe not going to be able to. Anything that can kind of uh, add to the tension and the drama, I think, is a cool way to to do it if you're trying to do that kind of thing. Now, if you're just wanting to kind of hang out and it's almost a puzzle to see who's smarter than any, you know, who's the smartest person at the table to figure out which places to put these numbers, that's a totally different thing as well. But I think that's cool how there's so many different avenues you can take with these games. And you're seeing that right now. you got an anthology with 10 totally different games, 10 totally different ways of doing it. And it's just a very interesting uh, design space that these, these games kind of bring to the table. And let's, let's kind of keep talking about that. What does the design process look like for one of these games. What have you seen? Almost like a behind the scenes designer journal yeah. kind of side of things. Tell me like the bigger picture process that designers have gone through to design these. Yeah, things. it's been it's been quite interesting because as as you can imagine, um each designer comes with their own design sensibilities, right? And their own processes. And you know, sort of my job and and Joey's job um is to help create a product that is 
the result of their design sensibilities to grab the the essence of what the designer is trying to get at and and bring that to the front to the forefront as much as possible and so for each designer that's been different nat levin came to us with a a pretty well designed and finished game uh and we you know he's relatively self-directed and he asks questions and whatnot but for the most part we just let him have his process and gave feedback based on the process you know is this the essence of what you're trying to do does this particular thing maybe take away from that on the opposite end uh what we asked for from all the designers at the very beginning was just to give us a pitch literally one paragraph what is your game about and from there we decided you know are we going to give this game the green light are we going to be there through the entire development process on this or not uh and it turned out that there were many more that we got to say yeah this is a great idea let's do this than not and so with each designer it's been different we've gone um back and forth a lot with uh Sarah and Will Reed who designed a game called Scrapyard Robots which is basically about being a genius and and going up against another genius to make the best robot for the science fair out of scrapyard parts so it's it's finding parts in the scrapyard and building a robot out of them and it seems so simple but it's so cool and you get upgrades and and whatnot and as we went back and forth things changed in fact i just found um sort of the first iterations of of everybody's game the, the initial design play sheets and i sent them back to him saying hey remember this thing and it just seems so primitive compared to where the games are now alexander shen has a game called islands of atlantis where you're literally raising islands out not literally figuratively raising islands out of the ocean uh and populating them and they come up and certain spaces have relics and there's a lot that went in and got taken out to that game there were surge bonuses and um you know uh fighting with the waves and are there things under the ocean that come up when the islands come up and so we got to try a lot of things and one of the great things about rolling rights is you can try it pretty quick and be like yeah this is great or you can try it pretty quick and be like mm, this isn't going to work but it doesn't it doesn't take a 45 minute playthrough to find out that that element didn't work very well so you can iterate very quickly yeah i think that's one of the real advantages to these games is you can design a game and then play test it over and over again and then like I said, you could be on the fifth or sixth iteration in one night, you know, just kind of working through the, the issues. And a lot of times you can play this game solo. You don't necessarily have to have a big, big group of people come over to uh, play it and all that. But uh, let's talk about managing expectations. Because I can imagine, especially as a publisher, you're, you're having to make decisions about what do people expect with this genre? You know, uh, I'll give you an example. So recently I was talking to a guy about a prototype that I, as a game I was super excited about. I think it's really cool, the different things he's got going on. So it's a roll and write with some extra rolling right kind of hybrid board game kind of thing going on and it was potentially a 60 minute game and i told him i was like one of the things you're going to run into challenge wise is rolling right the 60 minutes that's just 
that's just not how the genre is right now. And so I'm not saying don't do it. I'm just saying be aware and you need, you're gonna need to manage those expectations and make sure that it needs to be 60 minutes. Because if it needs to be 60, okay. But if you can get this thing down to 20 or 30 or something like that, it's going to fit with what people are expecting. And so tell me about kind of what you've had to do to manage expectations for, for these games. Yeah, that's uh, that's a really good question. The I think the designers came in pretty familiar with the idea of a roll and write. And so the first, the first part of managing expectations was you are limited to polyhedral dice, some sort of writing utensil, and a piece of paper. And a rule sheet, obviously the rule sheet. So that was the, the beginning of it, was just sort of setting that parameter. And we do have one game that we're developing for Volume 2, and it's, it's based on Netrunner. And the, the, first, the first rule, the first set of rules came in at like 14 pages. Oh, dang. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a cool game. Like, it's, it's thinky, and it's, it's, it's got that sort of, you know, you're on the verge of, of getting caught and you're on the verge of your corporation falling, but it's just too big right now. And so that's, that's what we had to come to. We had to say, look, we're going to have to develop this a lot and get it down to what is the core essence of this game? What do we want players to experience with this game? And how can we make that happen in, you know, like you say, 20, 30, 45 minutes versus an hour and a half. Sometimes what happens though is the rules seem intimidating, and then once you get them, it's actually a pretty quick play. It's just that you have to get a player thinking about a number of different things before you can get them playing the game. So that's been that's been pretty cool to look at. Yeah, definitely. All right, so what is what does the prototyping process look like for one of these? And maybe you've seen different designers and kind of do it different ways. Tell me some things you've learned, maybe some tips and tricks on the prototype. Yeah, uh, it's it's been uh, varied. Uh, one one designer literally drew up their prototype on a piece of paper, and we skyped and played the game and looked at it. And it's such a such a simple game, uh, Flowers Over Towers. It's about basically nature retaking a city uh, via flowers, um, and it was it was cool. And it was simple and, again, easy to iterate on, but thinky and strategic. Other, um, other designers came with a, you know, basic, basically what we needed was, how does this game work? I don't need your play sheet to be a work of art right now, but you got to send me a rule sheet and something that can let, allow me to play this game. And we said, we'll create a support structure where we'll, we'll add in art and graphic design and, and all that sort of thing. It doesn't need to be a masterpiece, but we need to understand how to play the game. And, and we need to be able to tweak it so that if something isn't working, it changes. And so I think one designer, uh, Robin Gibson, just sent me version 17. <laughs> of his play sheet 
Some people are on, you know, version five. We totally rethemed uh, one game. It was going to be about crop dusting, and now it's about protecting your coral reef and attracting a bunch of species to it and uh, trying to keep those pesky crown of thorn starfish away from it. So it's just been a it's been a very um, different process with each designer, and that's that's part of what's been really cool about this process. One of the things we did early on was create a discord so that the designers could play test each other's games. And so it, it built this sort of community up around these games. And I think gave everyone a little bit of ownership of each other's games because they were testing them and giving feedback and, and helping each other iterate. It was, it's been a very interesting process and I'm really impressed with what designers have come up with and how they've helped each other and it's become so much more than I thought it would be when when I first thought of it. Yeah, it's really cool. And it's almost like you've created this little sub-community of designers helping each other. And they're all working on the same project. But it's it, at the same time, they're very, very different uh, things that they're dealing with. And so that's, that's a really cool thing. And so let's keep talking about playtesting. What advice would you give to someone to playtest one of these games? Like, like we already talked about, you can do it over and over, and over again. But like, there's got to be some deeper things going on that maybe you've noticed, and maybe some things that other designers have done. So, what would you, what kind of advice would you give? Well, I definitely would always say, design with player experience in mind. What do you want a player to feel? So that's your sort of basis. What do you want them to feel when they're playing the game? And then, what can you do to make them feel that as much as possible? And once you get to the once you get to a point where you know what the feeling is, then you try it. You just play the game. I would say get get the prototype going as quickly as you can. It may be complete trash when you start. But the sooner you can test it and say, this mechanism works, this mechanism doesn't work, the better off you're going to be. Thankfully, you're out a piece of paper and a pencil uh, when it doesn't work. <laughs> and so you can fix it. In fact, you can probably just scratch it out on the same piece of paper, flip it over and draw a new one and change it and tweak it. Uh, don't, don't be afraid to try what seem like outlandish things because it could work and then test it. And if it doesn't work, try something else. And then when you get to a point where you're like, well, the game at least functions as a game, get some other eyes on it. Uh, Joey and I have gone back and forth a lot saying, here, this is what I think about this game. What do you think? Um, and then, then saying, okay, we've got to, even we have to get some other eyes on this. And, you know, there are, there are folks who um, have agreed to play test for us, which has been wonderful. But you've got to get to a point where you think you as a designer have done as much as you think you can before you get somebody other than your friends and neighbors playing it, right? I don't necessarily think that the, the playtest function is a whole lot different than the than a, a bigger game. It's just that you can iterate and try things so much more quickly than you could uh, with a heavier game or a, a game with more components. 
Yeah, that's a really good point. It also kind of made me start thinking about well, what are some of the challenges in play testing with a game that has so few components and there's you know there's less margin for error, so to speak, uh, with with the play testing thing. And that the thing that came to my mind is graphic design and making sure the graphic design of the way it's laid out, where people can place the numbers, where they can place shapes and different things, needs to be very very mm-hmm. clear. And so, what is what's your advice on graphic design, especially for somebody who's not a graphic designer, they're just a board game designer. They don't do any of the artsy fartsy kind of stuff. So like, what's your advice as far as creating a prototype that's still easy for playtesters to kind of see what's going on grasp and understand all the different things happening on that piece of paper? You know, that's a great question. Um, my advice is to get with somebody who is a graphic designer, but early in the process, don't get too caught up in, every little detail of the graphic design being perfect, get to the place where you can effectively test what you've done and figure out if it works or it doesn't. The graphic design is important, but there's a lot of different ways to convey information. And if you get to the point of, you know, where you're thinking about maybe you want to get this thing published, that might be the the point to really polish your graphic design a bit. Um, knowing of course that a publisher is, may very well, uh, tear it apart and put it back together anyways. Right. But at the same time, you're trying to put your best foot forward. And so I think, you know, spending a little bit of money or mm-hmm. hopefully you've got a friend or somebody in, in the community, you can kind of maybe trade some work. You know, I've got uh, graphic design friends who are also game designers. And so sometimes we'll trade work and, and help each other out with different things that, that we've got going on. So anything you can do to make the game look better, especially if you're trying to get it published, uh, it goes a long way. I mean, it's so hard yeah. to stand out now. And that's one way to kind of separate uh, your game. Now, one of the things we were talking about before we started recording was the value of creating a roll and write simply as a design exercise. So not even worrying about the publishing side of things, not even worrying about if it never sees the light of day, if it never even gets play tested by strangers or anything like that. Like, tell me, talk to me about the value that you've seen in just designing one of these things just to learn, just to grow as a game designer. Absolutely. It's totally interesting to watch the different processes of the different designers. But I think possibly the most valuable the most valuable part of the exercise is that you can try something and change it quickly if it doesn't work. You don't necessarily have to consider how does this fit into the balance of the next 90 minutes of play and this mechanism and how it it interacts with this mechanism and how it interacts with that mechanism. That's not to say that rolling rights don't have to be balanced. It's just to say that there is a, a small enough scope, usually in a rolling right, that you can mess with it and figure out quickly if something works. And I think that that not only is going to get your brain churning kind of on the, the right design path, but also gives you a model for how to do it with a bigger game over a longer period of time but in a condensed time frame. Yeah, I found it to be just a really good exercise to get the creative juices flowing and kind of get your brain thinking about other things. Because like we've been talking about, it's such an interesting box you have to put yourself in with such component constraints and time constraints, all these different things that kind of constrain your design. And it's helpful to learn to work inside the box so that then later on you can work outside the box mm-hmm. more effectively. And nothing I had an idea for recently. I, play, I played a game over the summer that was a row and write that was based on another game, a big game, bigger game, that had done really well for a publisher. And I think they thought, hey, why don't we just make a row and write version of this this other popular game that we've sold lots of copies of? And so I played it, and 
in my opinion, it was awful. It was just a terrible, mm-hmm. <laughs> terrible thing. And now maybe if it hadn't been based on that other bigger game, I would have liked it more. I kind of had the expectation going in. Maybe it just wasn't, wasn't managed, you know, didn't manage the expectations. But, but it got me thinking, like, what does it look like to design roll and write versions of bigger games? You know, and so I actually started working on a Scythe roll and write <laughs> game, which uh, turned out to be really bad and it was not any fun. Uh, and the different things I tried, they weren't very good. And so ultimately, I, I you know, threw it in the trash. And it wasn't something I was really trying to get published or anything like that. Anyway, it was just an interesting thought process and creative design exercise. But I really recommend anybody listen to this. Give it a shot. Find whatever your favorite game is or you know, wherever your few favorite games are. Look at them and go, okay, what would it be like to design a roll and write version of that game and just have some fun with it? See if you, you know, can make it happen. Hey, worse, you know, worse comes to worse, you just learn some things and you, you grow as a designer. Best comes to best, you have a game that actually might be proposing you could submit to a publisher and they're, they're trying to find games, you know, that, that fit with their lineup anyway. And so it's, I think it's a really interesting uh, exercise people can uh, put themselves through. Absolutely. And if you want some feedback at Inkwell Games on Twitter, <laughs> we are, uh, we're focused on rolling rights. So yeah, there you go. Now, is that something that you guys are actively still pursuing and, and looking for more submissions? We always want to see, uh, one of yeah. the things that Joey is, is really good at is he's played so many rolling rights. He's actively sought out any number of rolling rights from the most obscure ones that nobody's ever heard of to the, you know, the super famous ones. And, so the, the, the guy just has an intense amount of knowledge in his head. And uh, as we talked about earlier, you know, uh, this is just like this game, but with this little tweak. That's, of course, what we don't want to publish is just like this game, but with this little tweak. Now that I say that, I feel like I've, uh, I've set myself up for failure in the comment. Well, this game is just like this game. This game you just published is <laughs> just like this game, but with this little tweak. So... Uh, maybe I'm going to eat my words, but he's just got such a great knowledge base that he um, he can give so much great feedback. And that has been not only invaluable to our process, but is invaluable when we're, we're looking at games. So we always want to know what's out there and have a look at stuff. And, you know, we may not be able to get feedback to you quickly, but we will get feedback to you eventually. And we're always we're always looking for you know the next thing, and we don't necessarily know what that is. Uh, one of the things that came up not so long ago is um, how there's this this weird disconnect between designers and publishers, where designers are designing games that intrigue them, and publishers are looking for you know specific games, and maybe that doesn't mesh so well. There's not a lot of of great communication about what specifically you're looking for. And I think um, as a publisher, one of the things that happens is you, you don't know what designers are going to come up with, right? You know kind of what's out in the landscape, what's been done before, but really what you're looking for is for designers to do something new. But you don't know what that new thing is. So trying to say what you want and give communication about that doesn't necessarily define what the next thing is going to be because you might not know it. So we're always, we're always happy and willing and ready to take a look and give some feedback. Yeah. And that's a really awesome uh, resource. Awesome opportunity for designers that are out there. Uh, And speaking of the future, what do you think the future holds? Like, what do you, you know, you're kind of seeing off into the next year or so as rolling rights become more and more popular. I mean, eventually they'll hit, 
kind of a tipping point and it'll come back down just like everything else. But what do you see in, in the future as far as these kinds of games go? I think we have, we have just scratched the surface uh, design-wise. I think people are going to try to find new ways to use a die, for example. Daniel Solis just put out a dice placement idea where he's like, use the sides of the dice as ordinal directions. And I thought to myself, this has roll and write written all over it. Every different side of the die could have a different implication. And maybe you can rotate the die, maybe you can't. And that's not really been done before with a roll and write. Um, I think that because of the way they're so easy to iterate, there's going to be a lot of design that happens around them. And as you say, and I think it's true with any genre of game, there's going to be terrible ones and there's going to be great ones and there's going to be a fair number of good ones. But I think we've just scratched the surface as far as what the design space is for Roland Rights. And I'm really excited to see, you know, the next five years, just how far that can stretch. And I think you're right. It'll, it'll hit a tipping point uh, just like everything else. Maybe, or maybe we'll, we'll find the next kind of and right. And that'll, that'll create hybrids between the two and, and who knows. But I think, I think Roland rights have some longevity, maybe that other, other types of games may not necessarily just because of the ease of entry for everyone involved. Yeah. I feel like it's got some very interesting similarities to deck building. If you think about when Dominion came out and it kind of showed what we could do with a deck of cards and in this new style of, of using cards, and then all these really interesting other ways to do it came out. And eventually deck building just became just a, a mechanism mm-hmm. in a bigger game, right? And I feel like Rolling Rights kind of have that similar characteristic about them. We're, we're right now we're seeing what's possible, and then we're going to start seeing what's even what we didn't think was possible. And then maybe eventually you start seeing them just kind of implemented into bigger games where it's just a part of the game as opposed to the whole game mm-hmm. in and of itself. And so I, I think, yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I think there's some interesting uh, space still to be explored over the next several years about what this, this mechanism can do. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to see. Definitely. Well, cool, man. Hey, this has been great. Really appreciate you coming on the show and sharing these things. Do you have any closing thoughts uh, different, you know, like what's something you want to leave the listeners with, or maybe some kind of closing advice for somebody who's working on a rolling ride or thinking about it. What would you tell? I would tell them just because it's dice and a paper, those are objects that have properties. They have a purpose, but they also have properties. How can you utilize those properties in a way that hasn't been utilized due to thinking of them? like a purpose that would be that would be my design challenge to designers out there and if you already have one a roll and write in mind i want to see it first of all and good on you and if you don't have one that you're working on try it out it's a it's a great design experience um and uh definitely check out dyson inc uh it's inkwellgames.com slash dyson inc check it out well, awesome. Well, we've been talking about your Roll and Write anthology. Give me like the uh, two-minute elevator pitch for the uh, campaign that's on Kickstarter right now. Sure. Uh, ten, 10 games by 11 designers all bound in a book for easy transportation. It's going to be perforated so you can pull those pages out and laminate or photocopy them at will. And uh, it's got a, a 
pretty wide variety of games. Everything from single player co-op games and also um, you know multiplayer competitive games. And we're really we're really proud of it. It's it's gonna be one of a kind, the first of its kind. Check it out. Very cool. Well again, Odin, really appreciate you coming on the show. Appreciate the advice and a good luck with all these roll and write games. I hope this episode actually gets you a lot more submissions. Hopefully you find some really cool games from the BGDL community that uh, people maybe maybe have been working on for a while, just didn't know the right publisher. And it sounds like you might be one of the right publishers to submit a game to. So good luck with that and the Kickstarter campaign and everything else you got going on right now. Mm-hmm. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?